We're in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you want to take your Bible, whatever device you are going to be looking at. Now, uh, it says on your outline, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 18. I, I, I started the week with an eight-point sermon trying to get all the way through the chapter, and I realized quickly that that was not going to be. There's just too much there, and I pray that uh, the applications that I'll be making today through the first six verses will be appropriate, will be needful, will help us as we grow in our relationship uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jim mentioned a minute ago, uh, some of you might not have caught that, um, a funeral that we had this last week. Kurt Dittmer passed away, and uh, I agree with him. The Dittmers are here. They're faithful. Uh, they're in the house of the Lord worshiping as it should be. Uh, we've had several funeral services this past week. At one of those, a little over uh, a week ago, I was sitting right back here. Jim was doing the service. There was a family sitting in front of me, and there were a couple of the, the young men um, that were in our Awana class this last year. And so as the, the service was about to get started, I leaned forward and I tapped one of them on the shoulder. And I asked the question that I have been asking since preaching through the book of Esther. If you remember that one of our themes, and I hammered on it, and I hammered on it, and used it in our Awana group, and I still ask it to a lot of people today, including the children. And so I called him by name, and I said, how have things been going? Can anybody guess what his reply was? He nailed it right out of the chute. He said, everything is going according to plan. Now, that's a great sentiment. It's also great doctrine. But I was wondering as I was preparing this message and thinking back to the funerals, I, I was wondering, I don't know that this happened, it could very well have happened that that young man might have gone home and in the back of his mind, or maybe as he grows up, that response which he learned from his pastor in the preaching and in Awana and all the rest of that, everything is going according to plan, he might have asked his mom or his dad the question, if everything is really going according to plan, God's plan that is, then mom, dad, why is there death? Would you know how to answer the question that maybe someday one of your children or one of your grandchildren will pose to you? Would you be able to go back and very quickly in a nutshell say, you know, sweetie, God created everything perfect. But the first man named Adam disobeyed and because of that there was a curse and there was destruction, and there was chaos, and there was death that came upon not only the whole creation, but also on individual people. But do you know what? God, the Creator, actually became a man. 
and he lived a perfect life, and then he died a death for you and for me on Calvary's cross, and you can believe in him so that someday at the consummation when Jesus comes back again, your soul can be reunited with your body and you can have eternal life. You see, that's what a sermon like this, this morning, is really all about. But hey, that's what every sermon is really all about. It should be. That's what every ABF lesson, Adult Bible Fellowship lesson, that's what every Sunday school lesson for the, for the students and for the, the, the children and from the youngest down, when they're able to understand it, it ought to be an explanation that all through the Scripture we are given the instruction that we need, listen to this, so that through that in, instruction we might receive encouragement and hope. And so that's why we're here today. That's why we're studying through not only Nehemiah. For those of you who haven't been here, we have done a sweep through Ezra. We discovered how Zerubbabel came and built the temple. And then we took a little break. We studied through the book of Esther, God's marvelous plan when it looked like the Jews' backs were against the wall and there was no way out. And God delivered them, and now in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we discover in chapter 8 something that will carry us through, through the end of the book of Nehemiah, the restoration of God's people. And so we have that template. First of all, the structure was rebuilt, now the people are being rebuilt. So that the people can find out, and this is really what they were about, this is what we are about. This is not just an archaic book with a narrative about the restoration of God's people many, many years ago. This is so that you and I can discover how that we can walk as totally devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And it will be that way if we take Romans 15.4 to heart. So I have, as, as you can see in your worship guide, I have three very simple points. We're going to go through this read the Scripture, and then I'm going to make some applications that I see growing out of this that we desperately need. First point that just jumps out of the instruction given in chapter 8. I, I just, I have loved this chapter, and I love coming back and finishing it up, hopefully, prayerfully, in the next uh, week or so. Here's the first application that grows out of chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We must Hunger for, that's something inside, okay? And I can't make you do that, but it's something that I pray. And I believe that we've got a great deal of that, that that goes on Sunday by Sunday. We must hunger for, and we, now we're bringing this up to date. This application is for us. We must demand God's word over man's opinion. Verses 1 and 2. I want you to listen very carefully because there are some little points to this in addition to the main points that I want to make. Growing out of chapter 7, you remember we talked about the priorities this last week. And all the people I hunger for the day might not happen until after the Lord comes back. 
But wouldn't it be something if, if next Sunday every person, every covenant member, not only of the body of Christ, but who is here at Heritage, every member of Heritage showed up. We would run out of chairs. And here is this marvelous picture that all the people that came from the outlying areas, all the people gathered, look at this incredible unity, as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. A couple of things that I just, I just love about this. I, I just mentioned one, all of the people came together. Now, I, I am not getting on to those who providentially are hindered from coming every Sunday. I get it. But boy, does it do my heart well when I see people coming into this church building, and I know they had to work to get here. I don't know if you've noticed the last several Sundays. I, I'll, just, I'll just point you out, Judy, Judy Webb. She's been in a wheelchair. And, and I know that other people have had to make an effort. I see it when they walk in and I remember a lady in, in another church, and I knew what it took for her to get to, to church on a Sunday. And I walked up to her. Her name was Miss Katie. I said, Miss Katie, uh, I am so glad to see you here today. And she let me know that it took work for her to be here. And I said, that's an even better reason why I am glad that you are here the people all came together. Why? Because it was just a Sunday morning? Because it was just some place to go, something to do? Listen, they came together because they knew they needed something more than just a building. They hungered for the Word of God. They demanded that the Word of God be read to them. That's what covenant people, I'm talking about born-again Christians, should be doing if they're spiritually healthy. And the writer to the Hebrews puts it in the negative. And when I wrote this down and put it on the, the slide, I, I said to myself, I want to commend the people who are here. The writer of the Hebrews was saying, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You are here. You have heeded that command. And, and the thing that I see is that they did not want Ezra's opinion, and they didn't want something, hear, hear me, I, I mentioned something alluding to this last week. They weren't needing something exciting to attract them to be there. They just wanted to hear God's Word. They knew they needed something outside of themselves and outside of the nations surrounding them. So where did they gather? Now this is interesting, and for those of us in a particular area, our minds automatically go back 
when we hear that they gathered at the water gate. This is not a political place from the time of Richard Nixon and all the rest of that. If you remember our study of the gates, do you remember the water gate? Why didn't they gather at the temple? This is so symbolic. They gathered at the water gate. It was also called the old gate. That was significant. Remember, that was the place that was symbolic of foundational truth. By assembling at the water gate, they were saying, Ezra, take us back to the firm foundation. I mentioned when we preached that, we talked about Jeremiah 6.16. Go back to the old past. Go back to the old ways. And I, I, I made this disclaimer. We are not talking about old man's traditions. We are talking about the old ways that, that have been there since God wrote the book. We're talking about the necessity of God's Word. What's another symbol of the water gate? The fact that it washes the people of God with the water of the Word. Paul alludes to that in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. So here, here it is. Here's, I just want you to kind of overlay yourselves on this. You're, you're not in Nehemiah 8. That happened a long, long time ago. But here you are as the covenant people of God. You've come to the place, and there are other places that are doing this, but you've come to the place, and what you've said is, Marty, do not give me your opinions. Give me what is foundational. Take me back to the old truths and wash me with the water of the Word. And I've shared with you before, nothing fancy. This is bread and butter stuff. But that's what we seek to do. They came to the square, to the water gate. Now, look at this. Who was it that came? The character switch all the way through up until chapter 8, it's Nehemiah. Nehemiah. He had, listen, he had particular gifts and he had particular abilities that God used at that particular time, but all of a sudden it switches. And guess who it's going to be about now? It's going to be about Ezra, the priest, Ezra, the scribe. And I love this part. Ezra came, Nehemiah steps into the background, and there was a perfect delineation, a perfect division of duties according to the giftedness that each man had. There is no indication, I don't believe it was there, there's no indication that Nehemiah got jealous. Huh. Well, who does Ezra think? He is. I'm the leader here. No, Nehemiah's job was done. In fact, the only time you're going to see him mentioned as we go through the rest of the chapter, it will mention Nehemiah the governor. And so we see this beautiful picture of the body of Christ, and we jump to the New Testament, and we see that God has given these different gifts. I love the fact that on our staff we have this variety of gifts in terms of leadership. And you know, it really doesn't matter who it is doing the, the, the preaching or, or, or the visiting or the, 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 the leading of a funeral service or a wedding or any number of things that go on at the church, 
And let's just filter that down. And we're talking about you as well. There are a variety of gifts that God has given to the church. And so I love the picture here that when Ezra stepped in, it's a picture of neither Ezra nor Nehemiah had to do it all. Now, I, I know that our church is different. But when I started in ministry, and there are some pastors here that are among the aged, like me. And there was a day when the pastor, the pastor, really had to do it all. And, and some of you, you, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Some of you younger ones, you don't get that because the, the, the ministry of the body is this beautiful picture of coming together and the gifts are ministered and all of that. But there was this mindset and it was, it was a formula for pride on one hand or burnout on the other. And thank God that we recognize the, 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 the ministry that is given to the church by gifted people. Ezra was gifted, we know, looking back at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, he was gifted. And what he did was he set his heart to study the Word, to do the Word, and to teach the Word. Now, again, let's look back. It is the people of God who initiated the coming together, and it was the people who asked for God's Word to be brought to them. And I just had this, this picture. Now, I want to be very careful how I say this. And, and I do this a lot. We do not ever want to put up our church as being the do-all, end-all. We're not. We've, we've got ways in which we can grow, okay? But Paul recognized something 2,000 years ago, looking ahead to what he called the last days. And when I read this and started studying this, I thought, what a contrast to what we see a lot of in churches in our culture. And I'm sure that's the, this is the way it is in a lot of cultures. But Paul said these words, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They're, they're not wanting the, the foundational truths, but having each itching ears. Now watch what they do. They will accumulate for themselves. This is not a picture of preachers trying to get people to come and listen to their false doctrine. This is a picture of people who have itching ears and who will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit themselves. That's why I love Nehemiah 8. I look at that and I say, this, this is what I, I believe. I believe to some degree that we see here at our church that you are not a people accumulating for yourselves preachers and teachers who want to tickle your ears, but rather those who will give you the Word of God. And many, many, many years from now, when I shuffle off the coil... And whoever it is that comes here, and 
I don't know. Maybe it'll be a team. Maybe it'll just be someone else. I believe that at that time, you will be a Nehemiah 8 kind of people. And you'll say, bring us somebody who will bring us the book. If HBC is known for anything, let it be that we are a people who hunger after the Word. Now, let's move on. The book of the law of Moses, this is significance. What were they going to bring? The book, specifically the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. More specifically, this was the Word of God for them. Now, I want you to hear this because we're going to be traveling and, and talking about the importance of the Word of God. The Word of God that they asked for was what we today call the Torah. Okay? Well, what's that? The Torah were the first five books of the Bible. Another word for that is the Pentateuch. Five books, five writings. And they were calling for that because at that point, that's what they had. Now listen, you've got to get this. And for them, it was sufficient. You know how I know that? Look at how they viewed it. Look at it again. They said, this is the book of the law of Moses. They identified the guy that wrote it. This was not a made-up narrative. There was a guy named Moses that wrote this, but hey, he didn't cook it up on his own. The Lord had commanded Israel all these things. So they believe that Moses had written it, but ultimately they believe that this book came from God. They believed all of it, every word. They believed it didn't need adding to, it didn't need help, it didn't need propping up from the ideas of men who don't know Yahweh. Do you think that these people believed that the book they were asking for was inerrant? Do you understand what that means, without error? Do you believe, this is interactive preaching, okay? Let's get it back. Do you believe that they believed that the book, the book, the revelation of God that they had was inerrant? Yes. Do you believe that they believed that it was infallible? Yes. Do you believe that they believed that it was absolutely true from the first in the beginning to the end of those five books? Do you believe they believe that? Do we? We go back to that opening illustration. So what do you say to your child or your grandchild? Why is there death in the world? Would you be equipped with an answer from God's Word? Let me ask you this. I said, do we believe that? Do our leaders believe this? And just, just think with me for a minute. What would happen in, in our country, throughout the world, but in our country, if every 
leader of every evangelical church. An evangelical church is one who believes that you, you must be converted, you must be saved, you must be born again. But what would happen if every leader in every evangelical church today really believed what I just asked you? Is the word infallible, inerrant, sufficient, clear? I, I can only imagine. The people of God would be built up in ways that we, we can't even imagine. And it might spill over into a revival. If there's restoration in the church, then there could be revival in the land. But here's the other side of that. If those leaders don't take the whole book as infallible, including Genesis 1 through 11, if they don't take that portion of it as literal history, then they have no foundation upon which to answer their child or any foundation upon which to believe the rest of the Bible. Now, I, I hope you just heard that statement and you weren't distracted. Unless you believe the first 11 chapters of the Torah, the Pentateuch, there is no foundation. And if somehow we didn't believe it, well, we believed it kind of, but not all the way, then that banner over there, we'd ha we, we would have to change. We may not take it down, but we would change it. The banner right, right back there. See, it says sola scriptura because we believe that salvation is based on grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Scripture alone. What we would change it from and to is from sola scriptura to, and I'm going to use the Latin, scriptura et. Et means plus or and, etc. Scriptures plus something. There's a new study that I read about last week a study done of a thousand pastors. I know that's limited, but it's still pretty significant. Significant, and thirty-seven percent of those pastors interviewed did not have a thorough biblical worldview. Most of them had a hybrid worldview. They would tell you they believe the Bible, but they would add to or take away, according to other people outside the church, their worldview, so that there was this kind of hybrid. The, the technical word for that is syncretism, and a more accurate word for that is just compromise. Now, let me stop right here, and I'm going to walk you through as best I can some simple apologetics for what I've just said. Does it really matter for this group over here and for these younger ones over here and all spread out, does it really matter that you and I believe in the literal historical accuracy of Genesis 1 through 11. Does it, does it really matter? 
time may come when your child or your grandchild comes home. Maybe they won't ask the question. By the way, I'm going to share in a minute. That one question, why death, if evolution is true? That was the one that got me started. I'll share a little bit of my story. But what about the time when your child comes home from school or from being with other friends and he or she says, my friend says, that we evolved from frogs and from monkeys. And if you believe that God created everything around us in six days, then you're stupid. So what will you say? Will you be ready? The Bible says we should be. Now, I know this is used for witnessing. Become a, um, a person who understands apologetics enough to always be prepared to make a defense when you're out there on the street. No, we need, listen, I need to be prepared for when my grandchildren come and ask a question like that. It starts in the home with grandparents and parents who are prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within you. And then out of that defense, we can say, sweetheart, son, we believe with all of our hearts that every, every word in this book is God-breathed. And that means it's accurate. That means there are no errors. That means that we can take it to the bank about everything from in the beginning to the final Maranatha in the book of Revelation. I didn't always believe this way. I started, I'm going to date myself here, I started grade school, first grade, in 1956. Some of you are going to say, well, now, doesn't that predate Darwin? No. So, so I, 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 I went to church, okay, in a very conservative Baptist church. I'm sure the pastor and Sunday school teachers talked about this stuff, or we just took it for granted. But then I went to school, a public school, and I was taught about evolution. And so I had a hybrid view for a lot of years meaning that I believe that God created, but he just took millions and millions of years to do it, and somehow that was kind of okay. And in fact, I lived in the shadow, almost literally in the shadow of the University of Arkansas. And so when I was old enough, one of my favorite things, some of the guys, and we would go up to the museum, and it was probably just a fable Arkansas back in the 50s. It was probably a podunk museum. But to us, it was just fascinating. And one of my favorite exhibits was the exhibit of the evolution of man, and they had skeletons. That, that was just, that was really cool to me. And over here on the left, they had a little skeleton of a mouse. And then they had a little bit larger skeleton of a rat. And then a little larger skeleton, and I can't remember all of them, but it was really cool, they had a lemur and then a, a monkey, and then a chimpanzee, and then a gorilla, and then they had Mr. Man. 
and I, I, I believed in that thing of the evolutionary process. Now, hold on to your horses because I go through college and I believe basically the same way. And then I go to seminary and seminary is going to fix everything, right? And I got into Old Testament history class. These are, I went back to my notes. I've got my notes from seminary, Old Testament. One of my favorite props. He was really, really good. And so when we came to define day in terms of the creation of the world, we were told that the, the Hebrew word is yom. It can mean literal 24-hour day. It can mean an age or a period of time. And so he went through all of these theories and basically told us to choose which one was best. And I'm not going to get in. You can look up those, the age, day theory. All of them are basically how we can accommodate the six days of creation with the long millions of years, billions of the geological ages. It probably doesn't surprise you. And by the way, I came out of that school basically believing one of these. Because he taught that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis was a myth. Now, when he, when he said that, it wasn't a, a negative term to him. It was just, it didn't have to be scientifically accurate. It was a story told to convey a theological truth. My, my, my. Would it surprise you that out of that school and the Ph.D. program, there were students that were graduating who denied the virgin birth? who denied the resurrection of Christ, who denied the miracle. Several years after that, I was a youth pastor, first youth pastorate, and went to Glorietta. Well, that's where you're going to hear all kinds of sound doctrine, right? And heard a seminary professor teaching that Jesus really didn't walk on the water. The disciples thought he did. He was walking on a jetty. But it was a great example for the... I, I mean, literally, this, this was being... I did something yesterday. I asked all three of my kids, 45, 44, 43, thank you, 38. I, I got kind of scared because I thought I remembered teaching our kids certain things. And so I... I Talked to one in person, and two I called. I said, this sounds weird, a weird qu question, but it's kind of for my sermon. Do you believe in evolution, or do you believe in a literal sixth day of creation? I held my breath. <laughs> and all three of them said, well, we, we believe in literal six days of creation. Seventh day he rested. I said, well, why? We were just, we were taught that. But I'm, I know, but, but you had friends and you had schools and other things like that. And I tried to remember back to what I had taught them, and it, w it went something like this. 
Several hundred years ago, a bunch of very, not smart, but intelligent people. But do you know that there's a difference between being intelligent and being smart? Romans 1.25 kind of nails it. Professing to be wise, intelligent, they became fools. So you can be intelligent and still be a fool. In other words, not smart. So a bunch of very intelligent people got together. This, this is a very oversimplification. And they said, hey, how can we explain that where everything and where man came from without God or without the supernatural or miraculous creation? Oh, I know. We will make up a story. And even though it's going to take as much faith to believe it, just like it takes faith to believe that God created, we'll call it science. And we will make religious people feel stupid unless they believe it and call it a myth. And since no one was there, they can't tell us that we're wrong. And so they did. And they created this story of millions, millions of years. Does anybody remember the the fable of the frog and the princess. You guys remember that, the story of the frog and the princess? Okay, so there's a frog, and it becomes a princess. How does it become a princess? Come on. Through the kiss of a prince. So it's a frog, and then it gets kissed, and it's a princess. According to evolution, they take the same story, A frog becomes a princess, but they take out the kiss and they just add millions of years. And call it science. So where is this all going? I just said your child might come to you and say, where does death come from? What about when they come home and say, "Uh, you know, we've been hearing some things at school about gender. And we're going to get in trouble. In fact, in Fairfax, West Virginia, we're, uh, a third grader will be expelled if they call a little boy that doesn't want to be called a little boy a little girl. It's, don't get outraged. Just we need to do something about it. And so they're going to come home and they're going to ask you, what, what about gender? Well, do you know where that's answered? Genesis 1 through 11, creation. Or they might ask you, what about marriage? Do you know where that's first answered? Genesis 1 through 11. Why do we wear clothes? Do you know where that's answered? (laughs) Genesis 1 through 11. Why are there different languages? Why is abortion wrong? Why are there fossils on Mount Everest? And the thing that I was a youth pastor before I really started thinking about this deeply and I realized that if, if in any way there was death, if there was life millions of years ago and death all the way along, then what about Romans 5, 12? Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. How could there be millions of years of death if the Bible says death came into the world through the sin of one man? And that began me thinking and thinking, and I thought, you know, if I can't believe in a God 
who does a miracle of creation, however he did it, he did it in six literal days. How can I believe in a God who does a miracle of resurrection? That's why it's so important that we ask for the book. And we believe that all of it is true. Did God create Adam and Eve? Yep. When? Thank you. <laughs> that was not a trick question. When did he create them? In the beginning. Now, scientists will say there are no eyewitnesses. I beg to differ. There was an eyewitness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The literal day. Who was there that later on told us that he was an eyewitness to it? Because he participated in it. From the beginning of creation, Jesus said, God made them male and female. So either Jesus was, by the way, we, I think I might have shared on our vacation, we went to see Noah's Ark. And we went to uh, the Creation Museum. Stunning. If you ever get a chance to go out that direction, you need to go. Take your kids. Spend a day going through those things. And on Noah's Ark, they have signs all over the place saying, we've taken artistic license. It doesn't have to be true what we've said, how they fed or how they took care of the waste or, or whatever the case may be. But the fact of the ark and of the flood is absolutely true. So when Jesus is there at the beginning and saying, in the beginning God created man and woman, was he just taking artistic license? Was he lying? Ooh. Well, was he mistaken? Or was he truthful? You see, you can trust what Jesus says because he was an eyewitness. He took place. He took part of the operation of creation. And therefore, you can trust that Jesus really did walk on the water, which was a miracle. That he was born of a virgin, which is a miracle. And that he was raised from the dead, which is also a miracle. What am I trying to say? That the people in Nehemiah's time did that we need to do. We need to believe that the book is 100% true and build our lives on it. The crying need of the moment is for faithful leaders that will do that. And I'm not talking just about the guys that preach in the pulpit and the guys that work on the staff and the elders and the rest of that. It's the leaders in our homes, the moms and dads. It's the grandparents. Another study that I read this last week, guess what? Worldview is, now it can be changed because God can do anything. Worldview is basically developed by the time a child is 13. So don't just wait around. Be intentional about sharing this with your kids. I got two more points. And I got two minutes. Let me just mention these and appeal. Got a couple more slides. I won't show them. Maybe I'll come back. All right, I just shared this with you. Second point is this 
we must really, really, really listen to God's Word as if it were our very life. Why? Because it is. Because it is. And then the last one is we must deeply respect God's Word and let our worship grow out of it. Have you respected God's Word today? Now, I always say this, have the Berean spirit. If I've said anything that is not according to the Scriptures, challenge me. Come, let us reason together. Let's sit down and talk about this But let us do this together, deeply respect God's Word, and let our worship grow from it. How do you do that? What's the beginning place? Where do we start? The Word of God is always the same. It is the condition of the heart that is key. Students, and we're going to pray for you in just a minute before you go to Arlington. And you're going to go down there in that hot, sweaty, 110-degree weather, and you're going to share the gospel with these kids The gospel is always the gospel. The word is going to be the same. What you'll need to be praying, and we pray it today, is that the Lord will prepare the soil of the hearts of those who are listening. And that's what I always pray. The word has gone forth. Is the condition of your heart hard? Is it fertile soil, I hope, to receive the word to bring forth the fruit first of salvation and then of spiritual growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that it is.